And uh, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to let you remain seated. And uh, because Jeff has uh, just beautifully read the text as part of our worship this morning, we're going to be in that passage that he read, Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 39 as we continue this series, The Power of Encouragement. And today, specifically talking about the power of encouragement in the face of adversity. You know you have either faced recently some serious adversity or you're in the midst of facing serious adversity or you're going to be going into a season of facing adversity that you may not even be aware of today because that is what this life is filled with, right? Filled with adversity. So let's pray and ask God to give us understanding of these principles. May it be an encouragement to us and may we learn from it how to be an encouragement to the people around us that are also facing adversity. Father, thank you for what you've already done in our midst this day. Lord, thank you for your word that is never changing in the principles that we can live by that were true for the first century church that received this letter are true for us today. And help us to understand that we can be greatly encouraged by it in seasons of adversity And Lord, all of us that have friends and family and neighbors and classmates, co-workers that are going through seasons of adversity, may we learn from this text how to be an encouragement to them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You ever been in a place in life where you just did not have words to say? You wanted to be a blessing to somebody? You wanted to be an encouragement? Uh, I remember one of the most difficult moments in, in my ministry was actually when I was in student ministry in North Carolina, and there was a, a, a boy and a girl, they were twins, but a, a guy and a girl that were in the youth group, teenagers, and uh, Tina and I, or Tina or I, one, we would pick them up, bring them to church, and I remember they said, look, we can't come on Wednesday nights to youth because we babysit our nephew, but if you can, um, you know, make a car seat available, things like that, we can, he can come as well, and so sometimes we'd pick the nephew up as well, and the nephew would stay in the nursery so that uh, David and Shirley Anderson could come and, and be in our youth ministry. They both, both came to, to know the Lord during those days, and, and that was an exciting time. But one of the most difficult moments of my life is when we got a phone call at the church. They had um, found out one morning that their little nephew, two years old, had, had slipped out of the house and made his way to a little pond where he would often play with the ducks, but usually with a, a parent or with uh, an aunt or an uncle. And, and he had stepped out there to play with the ducks, and he had drowned and lost his life. And when I went to the home that day, as far as I remember, for the first time in my ministry, I was completely without words. I didn't know what to say. I, I'm, I'm looking at a young man who was speechless and, 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 and his face was just paralyzed before me. And I'm a, a teenage girl who was just crying her eyes out, brokenhearted. And we were all brokenhearted. And, and I remember our pastor preaching a message on how he never met a child who didn't love Jesus and how this child had been in our preschool and singing, learning to sing praises to Jesus. And so we felt confident that this this two-year-old child before the age of accountability was for sure in the presence of God, but there were still, with all those words about heaven and all those things that you wanted to say, that was not a time to teach a theology lesson. That was not a time 
that we could come up with. All we could do was cry and grieve with them from a broken heart. In moments like that, you realize that this world is certainly not all there is. There's got to be something that's bigger than all of this. There's got to be a God who can one day make all things right and make sense out of all this. So many times, though, we, unless we go through something catastrophic, we don't even like to admit that we need encouragement or that that we need some help along the way. We don't recognize those around us that need help. Now, if you try to be a blessing to somebody, they almost resent it when you try to help somebody else. I, I, I remember opening the door for a, a, a lady at the mall one time, and, and she almost looked at me angrily that I was holding the door for her. Like, you know, who do you, I can hold my own door. You know, I'm just trying to be a gentleman. And I guess that uh, maybe she didn't appreciate that so much. Sometimes uh, men can be that way, whether it's masculine pride that says I can make my own way or, or, or modern feminism that says I don't need help of anybody else, whatever the case may be. Sometimes people don't appreciate when you just try to help them out a little bit unless they're carrying a heavy load. I've noticed that if, if somebody comes to the door here at the church and they're bringing a delivery and they've got a heavy load in their hands, a big box or something, while, while they're very grateful that you hold the door, doesn't matter how big and strong the dude is. If he's got his hands full, if he's got a load, he appreciates a little help. You know, sometimes I believe God gives us an extra load so that we can appreciate the people that he puts in our life to be a help to us, to be an encouragement to us. And most of all, God will put a load on you so that you realize you can't get through this life on your own, that you have to depend upon him. When we come to this text at the end of Romans chapter 8, let's keep in mind what this book is all about. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's Paul's dissertation, his explanation of what the gospel is and how it's the, uh, the power of God to change our lives, to, to give us salvation, to give us what we would call sanctification, being set apart and empowered to live a holy life unto him. You get to Romans chapter 7 and you see this real struggle because Paul is saying, listen, man, I want to do the right thing. And so many times the more I want to do it, the less I find the ability to do it. I don't want to do the wrong things. The more I don't want to do the wrong things, the more I find find myself doing that which I know I'm not supposed to be doing. Anybody been there? You know the battle that, that he's facing. I want to do the right thing and I can't. I'm powerless. I don't want to do the wrong thing and I find myself doing it. And then you get to Romans 8, 1 that says, but... Here's the good news and all that. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You get to Romans 8, 4, and it says the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us when we learn to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And so God is doing in and through us what we could never do in and for ourselves. You continue to study Romans chapter 8, and it talks about that wonderful Spirit-filled life. And then it talks about a life of uh, this side of heaven on this earth we face suffering and the importance of prayer in the midst of suffering and the glory that's one day going to be revealed because of going through seasons of suffering and how the Holy Spirit is making intercession for us when we don't even know how to pray. I mean, it's just a rich chapter, one of the richest chapters. Now, listen, all of the Bible is the inspired Word of God. But one of my favorite preachers said that if he could only have one book of the Bible, he would take Romans, and if he could only have one chapter of the Bible, he would take Romans chapter 8. And so then you come with these unchanging words at the end of Romans 8 that many of you have memorized, or at least parts of this, you have memorized over the years. 
And, and you needed to know that deep down, though life happens, that there's some encouragement for you in Scripture. And, and there are some principle, principles behind these words of encouragement that not only could lift you up today, but you could use these principles to share with somebody else. Maybe, maybe not with a theology lesson when they're in that season of greatest broken heart and adversity, but, but to prepare them for that, to help them navigate through the healing of that. That maybe they're discouraged by the weight of a challenge. Maybe this morning that's you that's discouraged by the weight of a challenge in your life. Maybe it's a, a hopeless relationship. You know, God created us for relationships, and, and he's that most important relationship. But sometimes our relationships with others come to a place of where we just feel hopeless to make it all work out. Maybe it's the endless responsibilities that you have on your job, in your home, at school. Amen, young people. I mean, maybe it's the endless responsibilities that you have and you need the courage and the encouragement to carry on. Maybe you're facing a mountain physically or spiritually or financially. Maybe you feel like you've hit a wall in your walk with God and you just can't get past it. What does Paul have to say to us? What does the Spirit of God have to say to the church? What do you have to offer others when they're working through this in the midst of adversity or when they're about to face adversity for the first time? Well, here are the principles from the text that Jeff read a moment ago. The first one is this, and in, in these two maybe the first three verses here in 28, 29, and 30, we need to deepen our love for God. A God who has all things under his control. Deepen your love for the God who has all things under his control. Look back at verse 28 again. One, one, if, if not the first verse that many of you memorized after you memorized John three sixteen, this was probably the second verse that many of you memorized. We know that all things work together. Notice that the, those words work together were placed in there. It, it doesn't say that all things are good. We live in a sin-fallen world. Bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Really, apart from the blood and the grace of Christ, we're not good people at all. But bad things happen because we live in a sin-fallen world, but God is causing all things, literally, to work together for the good of those who love God. All things don't necessarily work together for the good of everybody, but they work together for the good of those who are in a love relationship with God. So in the midst of adversity, I want to be sure that in that season of life, I'm seeing it as a moment to deepen my love relationship with the God who has all things under his control, who can make all things work together for the good of those who are called according not to our own plans and purposes, but according to his calling on our life, his purposes for us. We learned that in the life of Joseph when we just uh, a couple of months went through the, the life of Joseph, that everything that happened to Joseph wasn't beautiful, but everything that happened was being worked out for his own good and for the good of God's people as his relationship was made more rich with the Almighty. And, and so we have this, this principle that, that God is blessing those and he's at work for those who are in a love relationship with him. And so if we're not in that love relationship, we, we have to be careful about claiming the promises and the principles. There was a song that we used to sing when I was a kid. 
And, and it went something like this. And I heard a lot of people claim it, kind of that, that name it, claim it, promise. It said this. It said, every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line. And I thought, man, every promise in the book? You, you know, there's a lot of conditional promises. There are promises that were just to, just to Israel. And though we might learn from the principles behind those promises, something about the nature and the character of God that we can depend on. But there were promises to different people, sometimes individuals, sometimes families, sometimes groups of people. Those promises were for those people. And we find the principle behind that. You know, in in Deuteronomy, we see this list of blessings and curses upon Israel. If you obey God, you walk with him, you walk in right relationship, that love relationship, you're loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Here are the blessings of God that are on your life. But then there is a much longer list of if you aren't walking in love relationship with God, if you aren't being obedient to his commands, then there's this long list of curses that are on your life. But the funny thing is, I've never heard 21st century Christians singing, every curse in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line, praise God, I've got the curses of God. But listen, if we're not walking in obedience to him, involved in that love relationship with him, and we're wondering, man, why everything in my life is falling apart, then we realize that the principles apply both ways. So there are wonderful promises for people who are walking in love, relationship with Almighty God. And, and in the midst of that, we have to learn, as a coach has recently made popular, trust the process. Here's the process. What's God doing? Verse 29, for those he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. I'm amazed at how many people like to talk about predestination without talking about sanctification. In other words, they like to talk about whether or not God has predestined some for heaven and some for hell and that sort of thing, and that's another theological bait for another time. But, but predestination is directly related to the fact that if God has saved you, he is conforming you to the image of his son. You have a destiny, and that's that he makes you more like Jesus And he will use adversity in your life to chip off the rough edges to bring you to a place to where you're more like his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers that resurrected Christ through his spirit, resurrects you and makes you a new person. And yet we're called to cooperate with God in that process. A few chapters from here in Romans chapter 12, Paul doesn't say, You have no choice but to be conformed to his image. He says, I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. That's speaking volitionally. You make a choice on a regular basis. I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And he says, don't be pressed into the world's mold. Don't let the world conform you, but be transformed. How, Paul? By the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, his perfect and pleasing his acceptable will in your life. It's part of a process, and he calls us to cooperate with him in this process. And the best way we can cooperate is by walking with him and deepening our love relationship for him, knowing that he has all things under his control. Look at what Peter says that he's doing. If you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, I want us to read verses 6 through 8 here. Peter is writing to a 
church that is facing adversity. Sometimes uh, we feel like in this nation that we're under spiritual and religious attack, and we are, but it is nowhere near as comparable to that which the first century church that Peter was writing to was facing under the Roman empire at this time. In First Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you've had to be distressed by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in what? The praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You love him though you have not seen him. And though not seeing him, now you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. How can they rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory in the midst of all of the persecution and trials and people even being martyred for their faith? It's because Jesus is doing something in them that is greater than anything this world can throw at them. And so we need to deepen that love relationship with Jesus Christ because that's the only thing that will carry us through. And so many of us, we it's kind of like as long as we get saved, as long as we're kind of, I'm on God's side now, I'm okay, and we almost stay infants in that process. And we stay at a level of infatuation. You know when Tina and I were dating and then we quit dating for a little while. Then we went to this Christmas party. We both had other dates. And we saw each other across the way. And we wished we weren't with, with our other dates. And we make an eye contact. There was a, an infatuation there. And we started thinking, we'd be having more fun if we were together. And, and so we grew through that season. Now we grew eventually to love one another with an understanding of what true love is. But in those early days, there was an infatuation. Man, we just wanted to be together. We wanted to hang out. And so many of us, it stays at that shallow point, right? I mean, life, bad news for you ladies, and and for some of us men who have lost our man card every time this time of year rolls around, life is not a Hallmark movie. And and so we we have the infatuation, we have the romance, and this is fun, and then we just assume they live happily ever after. There needs to always be a part two to those movies where, Now they've got children, and now they've got bills they can't pay. And now they're facing hospitalization, and now they've got all kinds of things coming their way that their love is going to be tested because infatuation doesn't carry you through those moments. Now, this is not a marriage lesson this morning. My point is this. A lot of people come to faith in Jesus Christ, and and they're kind of infatuated with it. They kind of taste the things of God. But it never develops. They never grow deep in their love for God and deep in the Word of God. It's a shallow faith. Sometimes it's an inauthentic faith that simply does not last. As Dr. Bill Bennett used to say, a faith that falters before the finish was a faith with a fatal flaw from the first. Don't ask me to say that again. It may be in relationships that you begin to face adversity family relationships, friends, maybe there's a hurt in your life, a health issue in your life, a disagreement with someone, maybe you're under attack from someone, maybe it is a financial situation, 
Maybe it's just the fact that you live where there are spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, and you've never been under more spiritual and demonic attack than as you are right now in your life, and it's time to deepen your love relationship with Jesus Christ. I've heard this before. You spell love, T-I-M-E, T-I-M-E. You can't deepen your love relationship with Jesus without spending time with him. And if you're going through seasons of adversity, let it drive you to spend more time with Jesus, more time in his presence, more time in prayer, more time in the word, finding out what he is doing. Because what he was doing when he spoke this word was he was giving you and me a word by which to live and build our lives. And so we begin to pray and we begin to journal and say, here's what God's teaching me. And we begin to pray through that. And all of a sudden, heaven begins to open up and God gives us spiritual discernment and eyes to see how he's at work in the midst of difficult times. He enriches our service. He enriches our worship. Listen, you can't be in a love relationship with God if you neglect worshiping him. Not just corporately, but in private throughout your life. Deepen your love for God, the God who has all things under his control. Secondly, I want you to see this in this text as it kind of builds to a crescendo. Well, If you come back to verse 30, it gives us a good segue into the next part. But he, but he says in verse 30, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified, and the word glorified is used in the past tense like the others to say, listen, God is doing a work and it's almost as if it's a done deal. And so he's going to have his way in your life because you are, as we sang a moment ago, no longer a slave to sin. You're a child of God. All things have changed. Any man be in Christ is a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new. So understanding that, dare to trust the God who defends his own in battle. It's the second principle. I want you to take it with you. Dare to trust the God who defends his own in battle. Verse 31. What are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can stand against us? Who is against us? And the understanding here, the supposition is that if God's on our side, it really doesn't matter who comes against us. Because you and Jesus make a majority. You've got the winner. You've got the one who is all victorious on your team now. And you're going to win because God is on your side. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I don't have to fear anymore. I'm not worthy to win the battle, neither are you. But look at verse 32. He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? It's not about how worthy you are. It's about how worthy he is. And because Jesus is worthy, when you're walking with him, you're walking in victory. I want you to turn to another passage here. Continue to hold your finger there in Romans 8, but turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great resurrection passage. Why? Why is Jesus the one and only victorious one? Because he's the only one. As we read here in Romans 8, the firstborn of many. He's the firstborn from the dead. The first one who was raised to life to never die again to receive a glorified body. In 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 54, really that last phrase in verse 54 is what I want you to see and then we'll pick up from there. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord 
Jesus Christ. So if all of hell, all of death, all of sin, and all of the grave is coming against you, how can you be victorious? Through our Lord Jesus Christ in no other way. It's through your relationship with him. That's not only how you're saved, that's how you do battle in life. By walking with Jesus. I know there's an entire passage in Ephesians 6 on the spiritual armor, and we're to suit up with that armor every day. But you can't suit up with the armor without knowing the one who is Lord of all the angel armies. When David was facing Goliath, he said, You come against me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of the armies, the God of the ranks of Israel, whom you have defied. We can be so fearful if we don't understand that God defends his own in battle. So I want to make sure not only I'm deepening my love, I want to make sure that I have an authentic relationship with him, that I am a child of God. I want an awareness of his presence every day in my life. I don't, you ever ask a little child to go get something in the dark? Maybe it was to step out side and get something out of a vehicle or something and it was dark and they're like, will you turn a light on? Will you come with me? Well, if you'll come with me, I'll go. Will you, will you walk with me down into that basement, into that dark place? Will you, will you walk? If you're there, I'm not afraid, but if you're not there, then I'm afraid. When we face the darkness of adversity, we need to feel as if our Heavenly Father has taken us by the hand and that we're walking with Him in those moments that there's an overwhelming sense of his power and his presence in your life. Maybe it's an adult who says, will you go with me to the doctor? I'm not looking forward to what he has to say. Maybe it's a young lady who says, Dad, I'm glad you're walking with me down that aisle as you give me away. If you're there, everything's going to be okay. We need that kind of awareness of God's presence in our life. The one who has it all under control, we now trust him because he defends his own in battle. Look, if you, back in, in Romans 8, verses 36, 37, as it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in, in all these things, in, in the midst of all this adversity, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The Greek, the word there is hupernikomen. It comes from two words, huper, which means super or, or abundant, in excess. And the Greek word nike, we, we wear those shoes, right? Nikes. It means conqueror. <laughs> and and it says here that together we are more than conquerors through Christ, the one who loved us. So now I've deepened my relationship with God, and I'm trusting the one who loves me. That's the encouragement that God is giving you and he's giving me if we're facing adversity. That's the encouragement that you have to offer others who are facing the same. And finally, number three, this may be the most difficult for any of us. (laughs) And, And the irony of this being difficult is that it asks us to quit letting it be difficult. And that is to determine to rest in the arms of the God who never lets go. Determine to rest in the arms of the God who never lets go. Who can bring an accusation against us? Back in verse 33 here. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. 
Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. If it was up to me and me alone to stay close to God, then I would not have the ability to do so. But it is God who is drawing me close. It is the Spirit of God who has arrested my soul and who has sanctified me and who has sealed me unto the day of redemption. It's God who justifies. I didn't save myself. Why do I have to live so insecure? If I didn't save myself, I can't be the one who keeps myself secure. But it's God who is the one who is at the right hand of the Father. In Revelation chapter 12, we see this battle in the heavenlies, and it says that the saints overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives to the death. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ and because of their confession, their profession of faith, it says that they overcame him. Look at verses 38 and 39. Well, as we close out this text, I want you to read these two verses with me. Can, can we read them out loud? Can, can we all read them together? They're on the board up here. Read this out loud with me. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have been called to rest in the arms of the one who never lets us go. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, All that the Father has put into my hands, I won't lose any of them. I'm holding on to them. And he he said, And my Father... He's not going to let go. So if we're sealed by the Spirit, embraced by the arms of God, we need to rest in that. There was a group of botanists that found a flower with binoculars toward the bottom of a canyon in a small, tight crevice, and there was no way that they could get there to get a close picture of that. And so they found a little boy, and they knew he could fit down in the canyon and into the crevice. And they said, son, look, hey, if you'll come over here, we can lower you down with a rope, and we'll, we'll pull you back up. We want you to get a, a good picture of this flower. We want to be able to study it. We want to know what it is. But we can't get down to where it is, and so we want to lower you down there. And the boy said, sure, one minute. And he left for less than a minute. He was back, had his dad with it. He said, this is my dad. If he can hold the rope, I'll go. What was he saying? I'm in a love relationship with this man. This is my father, and I trust him. Because my father, he's not going to let, I'll go anywhere if my father's holding the rope. He's not going to let go. Some of you are depending this morning, and you're stressing yourself out on your ability to hold on to God in the face of adversity. And more than any other time in the face of adversity, it's God that's holding on to you, and you need to rest in those arms. Enjoy his presence. Find your security in him. That security does not give you a license to sin, but it gives you the motivation and the power to attempt great things for Almighty God. Trusting that he will never let go. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?